Take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And uh, we can say happily, because God is the author of the Scriptures, infinitely wise in His authorship, we can say this is God's Word was written a long time ago. It was written with original readers in, in mind, but in God's mind also were you today. And so this is God's Word written for you, Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would give life and light to our hearts, for your word is perfect. For Christ's sake, amen. I know this is part of the aging process, I guess where I am in station in life, but it does seem that it's not just that. But every moment that you kind of turn the news on or open social media, read any sort of kind of news site, it's like this question like, what is happening? Like, what is going on? I mean, I could give you illustration after illustration, but honestly, as weird as they might be, they'll be kind of passe and boring by next week's sermon. <laughs> it seems like every day some new terrible atrocity of just like, what is happening in the world? What is going on? And I find myself asking that question kind of with more regularity. Again, I know part of it's my station in life. But I think part of it is honestly just the moment in time and the culture in which we live, where it's kind of a good thing in some ways. Like, what is happening in this world? And honestly, I think if we're going to be kind of a bit more biblical about that question, maybe the right question isn't to ask, like, what is happening? What's going on? Maybe the right question to ask is, God, what are you doing? Like looking around, look at the media, you look at you know, the news sites, you look, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? Well, we talked about this in Sunday school indirectly, I was setting us up for sermon today, uh, but really looking at his word for that answer. Uh, God is very clear in telling us who he is, and he's very clear in telling us how we are to live, but also... He is so generous and so kind and so gracious as to actually answer the question, what are you doing in the world? 
So that if you watch the news, which you honestly probably shouldn't, you can have comfort to know that this is what God is doing in the midst of this time and space. And honestly, Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 answers that question. God, what are you doing? What are you doing inside creation? What are you doing at this moment in time? What are you doing in Fort Mill, in South Carolina, in the Carolinas, in the Southeast, in the United States, in North America, in the Western Hemisphere, on earth at this moment in time? What are you doing? It's answered as a question uh, in the form of prophecy, which immediately some of us go, well, what are you doing? I didn't understand that, and then now I have prophecy, and I don't understand that. So, starting point, we're going to kind of look just a little bit at what prophecy is, how it works, before getting to the answer as to what God is doing. Realistically, honestly, most of us probably read prophecy and get a bit confused, or worse yet, you go open up Google and Google a passage in the Bible and try to figure out what the internet says about that prophecy, which is honestly probably far more harmful than good and leads you astray probably more than it leads you correctly. Uh, and sometimes we get to passages that, that don't really seem to make a great deal of sense, and that should be in some sense um, humbling for us, uh, but also at the same time a little bit encouraging because the disciples missed this too. Uh, this passage exactly deals with the topic they themselves, we have record of them missing and misunderstanding. So uh, it gives us a little bit of humility and encouragement and patience. <clears throat> but when it comes to looking at prophecy of any kind, big picture, uh, Old Testament particularly, it's important to remember that it's written from a thing called prophetic perspective, meaning the Holy Spirit is writing Scripture, but the Holy Spirit is writing Scripture through a person, through a man. That man's personality comes out, that man's moment in time comes out, that man's vocabulary comes out. Like you get to see a glimpse in the person and time in which he was and when he lived. But as a result, it kind of has kind of some consequences for how it works. First, the prophetic perspective, the kind of limited access of one man being kind of the way the Lord drafts the Scriptures is that he's able to see things into the future, but it's from only one kind of point in time. So oftentimes they look blended so that you'll get prophecies that sometimes are talking about two completely different times, but get smushed together so you can't see the difference. One of my professors that taught me about this, sitting in the room, always uses the illustration of Covenant College, where he went to college and I did too, where you can stand up on top of the mountain and look out across the mountain range off the campus. You can see like seven states from campus, and you can look out and see all the way across the valley. It's beautiful. And as you look, it looks like it's just a wall of mountains all the way around campus. But when you hop in your car and start driving, you can see actually that wall of mountains is actually three separate walls of mountains, one of which has a river running in between them. There's three different sets of mountains, but they all look together because from one point in in space and time, they all smush together. That is often a thing that happens when you're dealing with prophecy, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, is you have uh, multiple times smushed together. This is going to happen a lot in the book of Isaiah or other, the minor prophets, where it'll start talking about the day of the Lord 
And as you read about it, you hear that some of those things are fulfilled in the first arrival of Jesus as a baby. Some of them are fulfilled in the second arrival of Jesus as the judge. But spoken of together because the time is smushed together. It's how prophecy works. The second thing for governing kind of how you think about prophecy is that oftentimes this is how clever our God is. It's absolutely wonderful. Is that he can make a single prophecy with kind of multiple references, what we call them, but multiple fulfillments, multiple people that the prophecy would apply to. So that he can say in this moment of time, this thing, and as you trace that prophecy through time and space, it's fulfilled here, and then it's fulfilled here, and then it's fulfilled here. We have many examples of this, one of which I referenced already with our young people taking vows. Uh, The prophecy of Abraham and his family. Abraham, what's the promise that God gives to Abraham? Your family will be so big, you'll have so many children, it'll be like the sand on the sea, you won't be able to count all of them. And you begin to see that, yes, actually, numerically, biologically, his genes begin to proliferate, and there's this massive nation coming out of Egypt just a handful of years later. But even then, when it comes to the ministry of Jesus, and he goes to speak about family, does he speak about family in the lineage of Abraham speaking biology, or does he begin to speak about the lineage of Abraham in faith and obedience and love? He, he actually takes the original prophecy, Abraham will have a multitude of kids, which was fulfilled to Abraham, and a multitude of kids was fulfilled to Israel coming out of Egypt as a great nation, but then even ultimately in the New Testament is fulfilled not with geographic Israel, not with cultural or biological Judaism, But Jesus himself explains that it's fulfilled in the obedience and faith and joy and love and hope of the church. So that, yes, the Jews have spread all over the planet, but you know what? Christians have filled it far more because that was where the ultimate reference was going. It's a really clever thing that God does where he can make one prophecy that's fulfilled in multiple ways. Thirdly and finally, to kind of set us up for today, it also presents a challenge for us because uh, what's theologically called the already not yet problem. So that when you come to passages, you can look at them and some of them and see that there's a way in which this has already been fulfilled, but it's not yet fully done. It's not fully come to fruition. So we could say, is the church winning right now? Well, the church victorious? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to say the church isn't victorious. Seven billion people on this planet, how many of them profess to be Christians? Something like two billion people profess? Now, obviously, that's probably not the right number, but that's ridiculous. That's an amazing number of people. It's hard to say the church isn't winning, but at the same time, can we say, well, it's not yet full? We see the church pestered in sin and temptation and all sorts of problems. We can see this kind of already not yet challenge. Well, why is that going to be, why why are you spending so much time on this, Michael? Well, because Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 specifically, this is the introductory portion of the book still. We haven't gotten to kind of the chronological section yet. That happens in chapter 6. But Isaiah has put this at the front of the book to kind of give us an insight into what God is intending to do in creation. This is kind of peeling back 
the curtain a little bit and saying, hey, by the way, this is what God is intending in creation. This is God's mind for creation. This is God's mind for you. And then he begins to explain it, but he's explaining it within that vocabulary of multiple fulfillments, multiple reference, and with an already not yet structure, which kind of you have to talk a little bit about. So that we get to see three primary things in the text that are happening. The word of God that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So here is God's word for Jerusalem, the place where God himself resides. It shall come to pass in the latter days, a term we know now in the New Testament applies to anything after the first coming of Jesus and up until the second coming of Jesus. It shall come to pass in the latter days now, these times, this point in history, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Now, we remember that Jerusalem is up on a mountain. You had the temple on kind of the top of it, and it was noted for its height. It's referenced constantly, but even something bigger is happening here. God is not simply speaking kind of geographically. He's speaking thematically. Throughout human history, all of the gods, gods, lowercase g, plural, They've always lived on the mountaintops. They've always dwelled in the high places. You think of about where does Zeus live? On top of the mountain. That's where all of the Greek gods lived. Where did the Roman gods live? They lived on the mountain. All of the gods throughout all of history have always lived on the mountains. They lived in the high places where they could look down upon mankind and rule and interfere and be mischievous if they were villainous. What's happening here is actually some sort of different description where uh, God is instead taking the place where he resides and establishing it, building it as the highest of all the mountains. Now, again, is this a literal illustration? Is God saying that, hey, uh, you know, at the last days, what's going to happen is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on has suddenly become higher than Mount Everest? Is that what's going to happen? And everybody immediately dies of oxygen deprivation. Sounds like a terrible prophecy. Right? Hey, the place that God lives, all of you should live with him, going to be lifted to the mountains and everybody dies. No, what's being established here is, is kind of a contrast between all of the world around where all of these false gods, these lesser gods, are going to rule and reign in their tiny and minute and villainous and mischievous little ways, but the real and true God will establish his rule and will establish his reign and will establish it in his place with his people in his kingdom, and it will be high and lifted up above all other kingdoms, above all other gods. What he's establishing is that he's showing he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He always has been that. But it's going to be illustrated and demonstrated in his church, in his people, in his kingdom. And the way that that would happen would be kind of, again, metaphorically, through that mountain being lifted to the highest of all the mountains. And then, interestingly, he uses another word picture, a river word picture. And the river is going to flow uphill to the top of the mountain. But rather than it being a river of water, it will be a river of people going to seek the place of God. 
What he's saying is that God is in the process, he's in the purpose of building a people that are the center of worldwide attention and attraction. They become the focal point of all of human existence. Now, you can see where this is the multiple fulfillments gets to be a bit of a helpful idea because this is exactly what the disciples miss. You remember this, right? They're famous for this. It happens, you know, kind of right in the center of the Gospels and then into Acts. They ask, Lord, is this the time that you're going to fulfill your kingdom? (laughs) Is this the time where you're going to elevate Jerusalem to the top of the highest mountain and your physical reign governs the entire earth? And what is Jesus' response? Guys, you missed the point. It's not this kind of physical reign that you're talking about. It's a a spiritual kingdom that's already here. It's already happening. It's been happening. That's what his entire ministry was about. You remember what his first set of sermons are. Repent, the kingdom of God is now. It's already here. It's already happening because the king is in their midst. What's being presented here actually instead is an explanation as to what God is doing through his people is to create a people that are the center of worldwide attraction. That the church would become the center of worldwide attention and attraction with people being drawn into the church. And we would look around and say, is this already being fulfilled? Yes. I mean, now, not fully, not yet fully, but it's already being fulfilled in some fashion where you see where does the church currently exist? Everywhere. You get people of God scattered all over the world in every tribe and tongue and nation in some fashion. Certainly there are nations not yet evangelized, which is why we labor for that. And people are constantly being brought in and growing and meeting the Lord and changing. And interestingly, kind of part of this, that the church would be an appealing and interesting thing, a desirable and wonderful place, that God's people would be marked by his presence and therefore marked as wonderful and intriguing and interesting and lovely. He doesn't stop with that, though, right? First, God is building a people that are the center of worldwide attraction. Two, God is building a people that are the center of worldwide revelation, worldwide revelation, Middle of verse 2, it shall be established as the highest of the mountains, this uh, holy mountain that God lives and reigns on, the temple, you know, the Jerusalem, uh, fulfilled ultimately in his people, shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow up to it. Again, kind of river imagery reversed. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Why do we want to go to the mountain of the Lord? We want to go to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, do we need to go to a temple again? We know this. New Testament, the temple's destroyed. Why? Because we don't need it. The temple is now fulfilled in Christ and then fulfilled in you. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. For what purpose? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
What God is in the business of doing is creating a people, building a church that worldwide is desirable and lovely and wonderful and good and right and true, and beyond that, has the truth and is willing to share it. Has the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you want to have your sins forgiven? That's taken care of in Christ. Friends, do you want to have your shames removed? That's taken care of in Christ. Friends, do you want your isolation and loneliness to be overcome? That's taken care of in Christ. It's taken care of in His truth and His Word that we may teach His ways and then together obey them. That's pretty wonderful. I mean, it's pretty delightful that the church would be this uh, sweet and wonderful place that whereby we have worldwide revelation is it's given as the, the place where truth is found. Notice that was what we said in our confession earlier. Brandon highlighted it. Apart from the church, there is no ordinary means of salvation. It's where salvation is found. But it doesn't stop there. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But then now we see third is that it, God is building a people that are at the center of peace. Worldwide peace. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So what's taking place through God's kingdom, through his reign, even ultimately in his people, is that peace becomes kind of this contaminating thing that spreads out from the people of God. And the tools of war are even put away. Now, this is one where it's very easy to see. Is this one uh, all the way perfectly fulfilled? No, certainly not. There are wars, there are rumors of wars, and they will continue. But is it partially? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, that we're entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation because the people of God are to be those of peace. In fact, actually, you get to watch perhaps not often nation against nation with peace following, but we get to see family against family, family member against family member, where war that has been being fought for years, decades, can finally be put away. Hatreds that have been clung to for years can finally be put away. Forgiveness that never thought it would ever be given, much less asked for, can finally be given and put away. And friends, we get to see that that is, again, part of the presence of the Lord and His people is that the consequence is peace. We get to actually practice forgiveness and work through these things together. Now, it is happening at a national level sometimes. You should go read uh, Romanian history. Yeah, I know, I did just make that recommendation. Uh, but their revolt over from communism in Romania is really intriguing as it was actually the church that did it. The bloodless revolution is pretty spectacular. These are being fulfilled. All three of these things are currently and actively being fulfilled, though not yet fully. 
This is where we get kind of this helpful matrix of those ideas at the beginning that God can make a prophecy that kind of looks differently through time. God can make a prophecy that is given to Israel but is ultimately fulfilled in his people, though partially fulfilled in Israel along the way, and that it can be already but not yet filled in the future. All right, so there's your high-end kind of explanation of the text, figuring out what on earth do we do with prophecy, uh, but it still leaves us with the question of what on earth am I supposed to do with this? If I'm a normal lay person in the church, I've just taken my vows of membership, I'm now a member of the church, and I get to vote here in just a little bit, what am I supposed to do with a prophecy like this about the kingdom of God? Well, you may have caught it if you were listening to their vows. They said one of them is that they promise to support the work and worship of the church. Well, we know what the worship of the church is. That one's pretty obvious. We're doing it now. But what is the work of the church? Certainly teaching Sunday school, certainly working in nursery, certainly things like that. But that's honestly part of what chapter 2 is getting at. What does the work of the church looks like? Well, the work of the church looks like creating a place that is appealing because it's filled with love and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and hope and joy, and you are committed to working toward that end. What does the work of the church look like? It looks like a people of God that are committed to the Word of God so much so that we, not just the pastors, not just the elders, but that the people of God, the very church itself, is known as being the place where truth resides. So that this upcoming generation that has no concept of ultimate truth beyond their own experience can learn that there are people that know what ultimate truth is, know where it can be found, and know exactly what it means. And that we would be the kind of people that are actively working the work of the church toward peace. Now again, I say this often when we talk about peace, peace is not the absence of conflict. That's not what the Bible uses as the term peace. That's avoidance. Peace in the Bible, the way it's often referred to, is think about like a very fancy, like uh, high-end watch, you know, where all of the gears and the cogs all fit together perfectly. Like if you ever have like one of the really fancy watches where you can kind of pull off and look at the back of it and the back of it's open crystal so you can see all of the tiny little gears moving so perfectly in such, you know, absolute, just minute perfection, That's more of what the Bible means with this idea of peace is that everything's working the way it's designed to work. And it's intriguing. That's part of the challenge for you as a a child of God, as the work of the church is learning to get things working the way they're supposed to work. So fighting for your marriage in a culture that divorces rampant. Fight it for proper parenting in a world in which parents are largely absent. And when they're not, they want to be their children's friend instead of their parents. Fighting for the truth in the midst of a culture that constantly believes lies. Fighting for reality in a world that constantly believes in fantasy. Building a place where things work correctly. Now, the reality of the matter here is this is certainly beyond our power, beyond our ability, 
But I love how verse five is kind of frames out, really, this is a commitment for the people of God. It's verses one through four show us what God is doing, and verse five shows us our responsibility. O people of God, O people of God, come let us walk in the light of God. Now, walking in the light of God is best, you know, means probably two things. One, the obvious one, is walking in obedience, <laughs> light in contrast to darkness. It's very um, hard for us to kind of think of these things as being fulfilled when we are ourselves actively working against them. We don't know the truth. We speak out of our own opinion constantly. Uh, we're picking fights instead of putting them away uh, where mm, the church may be not quite so appealing because we're not appealing to be around. It's really interesting. Jesus begins his ministry and where does he get invited to? Parties everywhere. And it's really significant to think about. It. He was invited to like every party everywhere he went. A desirable person to be with. All right, so one element there, certainly obedience, but even beyond the idea of walking in obedience to the Lord, but walking in His presence. That's ultimately kind of what this is getting at. Verse 2 starts with Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, the people of God will be the place where God dwells. Now, at this point in history, it's still geographic, but our kids learned that in Sunday school this morning. It's no longer geographically connected. Now it's fulfilled in his people. But where the Lord dwells with his people, these are to be the things that follow because God does these things. God is desirable Wonderful, lovely, beautiful, right, and true. God is truth, reveals himself. God brings peace, for he is peace. We are to be those that labor to be in his presence, cultivating these attributes not in our own abilities, not in our own understanding, not in our own word or works, but laboring for them in Christ and in Christ alone. I might make one more kind of application in light of a passage like this, and I think this is probably my favorite kind of application, certainly the one I made earlier in terms of go live obediently in the presence of God. But really where we started, Isaiah chapter 2 is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that teaches us about what God intends to do inside creation. And it's intriguing that as you actually pay attention to the details of what God intends to do inside of creation, it is blessing after blessing after blessing to His people. I mean, if you just kind of think about it from that perspective, verse 2 begins with it being a blessing because He lives there. It being continues as being a blessing because the place where God resides is elevated, is higher and more glorious and more wonderful than anything around it. The place where God dwells is elevated even above the nations as being special and unique and wonderful and lovely to Him. 
elevated to the place where other people will even begin to ask questions, elevated to the place where the truth is given to them, where they may know right and wrong, know what is real and unreal. Even being elevated to part of the place where he judges from and seeing peace flow. Friends, some of us in the room have had a hard time of it lately. Um, And I'm going to be candid. We talked about this in Sunday school. It's very easy for us to grow weary in doing good. It's very easy for us to be overwhelmed by the difficulty. It's very easy for us to be overwhelmed by the physical sickness. It's very easy for us to be overwhelmed by the darkness of life. And I appreciate passages like this because it's the Lord kind of stepping into your life and saying, no matter how dark it is, this is what the Lord of life is doing inside creation. No matter how sad you are, no matter how hurt you are, no matter how alone you are, no matter how kind of fragmented you feel, no matter how much you just feel blown apart from the inside, our God has told us He is building a people like this. People of beauty and loveliness, people of truth and reality, people of peace and of hope, and honestly, He's doing that in you. He doesn't squander your hurt and your heartache. He doesn't squander your physical sickness. He doesn't squander the loneliness, the friendlessness. He doesn't squander waste any of that. He's the most magnificent God that he can use terrible things, terrible building materials to build the most beautiful thing, the most lovely thing, the most wonderful thing in his church. Brother and sister, if you are weak and weary and wounded, if you're that person, please pause for a moment Stop listening to the lies that the devil is whispering in your ear. And be reminded the Lord loves his people. And he's changing you to do something wonderful. And if you ever lacked any kind of assurance of that, that's why we have Jesus who's already finished, it's accomplished, and his spirit, which is proof of his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for passages like this that are probably outside of what we normally easily read, certainly require a bit more of our thinking cap on to understand and to apply correctly. But we thank you that the takeaway here is that you love your people and you're building something wonderful. And Lord, we thank you that even our sin can't get in the way of that, and so we'll find out next week. (laughs) You rule and reign perfectly. Forgive us for our sins. They are many. And, O Lord, encourage us in your grace in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.